Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People and Places. Today we have a guest that is both an inspiring person in my life and is doing work to inspire other people in the communities that he's building. We're going to continue our exploration into the world of real estate development with my good friend, Nick Cangelosi. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, BJ. It's a pleasure to be on. <clears throat> Great to have you. Ton of our work is around public sector engineering construction. We started dabbling into the private sector of real estate development, and you bridge the gap between public investment into the affordable housing community. So talk to us about what affordable housing is before we get into your background. I love it. It's generally a question we get all the time leading into these type of conversations because there's a major difference between what is naturally affordable in certain marketplaces and then tax credit affordable capital A housing as we like to refer it to. So the naturally affordable housing doesn't have deed restrictions. They do not have income requirements. There's very little compliance in connection with how those particular assets perform long term. In our space, and again, I call it the capital A, there is a tremendous amount of compliance, a tremendous amount of income restrictions and oversight and government input in these communities. So where our Ballywick is really deed restricted, low income housing tax credit, affordable, either with a 9% or a 4% credit. And just so your audience knows and you know, your traditional multifamily development high level is 30% to 35% equity, 70 to 75% or 65% debt. And then of the equity is generally split that on an LP, GP basis. In the affordable platform, a majority on the 9% is equity derived through the sale of low-income housing tax credits. And so I don't want to get too in the weeds. I'm sure we have a bunch of questions, but basically we apply for tax credits through state housing finance agencies. The credits that we receive by way of a very competitive process on the 9% and then by right on the 4%, we work with banks and insurance companies to effectively give them the ability to take a federal tax credit and in lieu of that, they invest the equity portion of our affordable efforts. So in that platform, we're not actually putting up equity. The equity is coming from our sponsors and then we raise debt with, with conventional lending. I think everything you just said is deserves its own masterclass in the financial side of low-income housing and affordable housing development. But I think it's what I appreciate the most about the way you have to approach being a VP in the development space is you're not just understanding the engineering and construction or the land development and the entitlement or the community needs and stakeholder outreach and politics, but you have this entire financial bowl of or financial soup you have to deal with to make the deals work. So I, I love it. Let's go into your career path and how you ended up in the affordable housing space. I want to do an elevator pitch for Michaels because 
you recently, or maybe you've always been in the military housing space, but you recently got in there in a big way with a huge acquisition of a portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've always worked with Clark. They were a big, okay. they used to build a lot of development efforts for us. And recently we bought their military installation portfolio, which added another 11,000 bases across the country. We certainly pull, probably, we tell everybody, we, we, not only the diversification of our product in terms of our military, student, affordable kind of market rate, we do any everything from the lowest, most subsidized housing in the country to some of the highest market rate, class A assets as well. And the military housing is something we're extremely proud of. We like to talk about lifting lives on the affordable and then anything we can do to lift the lives of those that have served our country and support them and help them through whatever they're dealing, they're going through at the moment. It really aligns with our supporting supportive housing programs and empowerment services. And so love the military platform. BJ, certainly love everything you do to support veterans throughout the country in your MCFA and everything else you do on your philanthropic side as well. Appreciate it. Nick, talk to us about how you go from your education at Georgetown to now being a VP or senior VP of development at Michael's organization? Yeah, I always tell folks where it really started. So I go to school in DC and I've always had this affinity for politics and public policy. It's always something I've been fascinated with. But I also love real estate. My father was in development. He also dabbled in the affordable as well. And so when folks ask me where the fire came to get an affordable, I tell them it's really affordable housing is the confluence of public policy and real estate development. So what we do in the affordable housing execution side in terms of the site selection, the entitlement, the capital markets, the design, the lease up, the refi, et cetera, it's not much different than your traditional market rate development, right? But there's a whole influence of public policy in what we do, whether we're serving homeless veterans, whether we're serving victims of domestic violence, whether we're serving certain income bands that just need a leg up, right? And so I've always loved public policy, been fascinated about politics, and and always loved uh, real estate. And I've always liked helping people. And that's kind of where my, my North Star is. And there's something special about visiting some of the communities you develop, sitting with their family, their children, their grandparents, and hearing the positive impact that having decent and safe and homes that they can afford have had on their lives. And they're able to now pay for the type of healthy foods they didn't have before, get health care, send their kid to school, because they now have housing that they're safe, they enjoy living, and they can afford and have income for others. And until you get in this space, you can't appreciate it. A lot of us come from backgrounds where we never worried about where our dinner was coming from, or if we were able to go to the local hospital when we ha have an issue or how we were going to get into school and how we're able to afford certain things. And we just take it for granted. And what I love about this industry is it always helps to reset my mindset when I get a chance to sit down with some of the families that, that I work for. You touched on the confluence of public policy and politics and real estate development. And it brings me back to the first conversation, maybe one of the first conversations you and I had about the second mountain by a book, second mountain by David Brooks and finding a way to have kind of an impactful career while being able to provide for your family and all that, the ability to do good and do well at the same time. And I'm sure growing up and seeing your dad do this, it exposes you. How did your career path land you at Michael's? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So the fire to my public policy 
versus real estate burned brighter out of after graduating. So I went into the government space and worked for a quasi finance government development agency that both played in the uh, county and the local politics. We used to issue bonds and other taxable and taxable products to support infrastructure development, hospitals, schools, housing, and also got very involved in the political space. And I tell a lot of folks that was the bedrock of my career because I learned how government works and I learned how they think and how they act. And those that come right into our space from the private sector have a very difficult time swallowing, as I call it, I hate to be cruder, I call it the shit sandwich. Like I can eat a shit sandwich that involves like dealing with a lot of red tape, dealing with a lot of bureaucracy and finding creative ideas to break through the obstacles and get to the finish line. And I enjoy that. And right, the other folks, it burns them out. And I find a great energy and enthusiasm in bringing all the team together, finding the issues and working through that. So I spent a ton of time in five years in government, learned a ton. And while I was there, I was working on helping to support a low-income housing senior community in the barrel of Wanside. It was a historic school building that, they, that a group out of Rochester, New York was rehabbing. I was five years into it, looking to make a move. And one of their senior VPs offered me a job in the development team. And so I took that, was there for a couple of years. And then I was approached by the Michaels organization to take on a, a role uh, helping to support their development platform in, in South Jersey. And I, I've been here for about nine and a half years. And, and it's just great. It keeps the fire burning on both the public policy and the real estate. I want to highlight, because this is where we have another intersection, is getting the experience of being on the government side, the appreciation and the frustration of what goes on the government side. We may look at it as taxpayers, as bureaucracy or red tape or whatever, but all of it exists for a reason. But you also, when you're on the public side, and I think when you have the right perspective on the public side, you appreciate what the private sector can do as a partner, as opposed to as a vendor, right? And then when you have that mindset and you understand the handcuffs that maybe they have and the lack of creativity that they can have inside of the quote bureaucracy, you also can see what a champion looks like and how do you help that champion get stuff done that's supportive to their mission, whether it's housing or better healthcare at a VA hospital or whatever. You, you that the private sector can bring solutions to the table that they can they just can't do internally and i think that's You're i think that's what's important for our audience to hear because so many times we find that it's like us versus them instead of hey find the people inside of the public side that that really care about the mission care about stewardship they're not trying to they don't want to break any rules but they do want to they want to innovate. They want to be creative. They want to get things done. Our most, to that note, BJ, I think some of our most successful development efforts in the affordable, the student, and in the market rate, more on the kind of call it the attainable housing side, have all been what we call P3 partnerships. It's the mm -hmm. public and the private. And so when you're spot on, when our vision is all aligned and from a government and a private sector, and we all help fill the gaps that we all have. And we're all moving on the same path and the same track. We, it, it, you're, it's unstoppable. And so much of what the military housing, for example, that they realize that having 
for-profit development and management companies at the table. And so they issued a major privatization and the military housing has been extremely successful as such. The affordable housing side is going through that dramatically right now in the rental assistance demonstration program, whereby housing authorities are partnering with for-profit development companies like the Michaels organization, where we can go out, we can source tax credit equity, we can source conventional debt. Um, Our management platforms are radically different. Our ability to execute on the construction side are profoundly different. And so we're able to derive much more efficiency and quality in taxpayer dollar with a partnership. But you don't want to negate having the housing authority and having housing finance agencies and having local county and nonprofit groups there to provide the vision and some of the boots on the ground is paramount. And so when we all work together with the same mission, it's extraordinarily successful. You mentioned something that I've only heard a couple of times now, attainable housing. So you talked about the band of Uh, luxury down to some of the lower income housing and the entire band that Michaels spans. Where does attainable housing fall in? And talk to us about what that is. So the low income housing tax credit program was predominantly focused on families and individuals who earn 60% of area median income and below AMI. And there's a whole nother about in different metropolitan statistical areas. And HUD has a lot of research that supports this data. And so if you earned any more than this particular income band, you were ineligible for any type of house, subsidi- subsidized housing. So and what let, is me, tra- let me just slow, let me slow that down. 60% of median 60% income? Of median income is based on family size. And okay. so that varies the more. So there's a band that's put out by HUD. Got that's it. put out by HUD. And so what, what has transpired recently? Now, now, Grant, I know we can get very detailed and depending on what level your audience wants to get involved. There, there recently was legislation that allows for what they call income averaging, which if you set lower income, you can go up to 80%. But I won't bore everybody with that unless they email me or call you and want more information. But nevertheless, let's just say for purposes of this conversation, zero to 60%. What is happening, especially in the Southeast, where we're very active, you start seeing states like Florida, Alabama, the Sun Belt and into Texas, South Carolina, North Carolina, you have a tremendous amount of both population growth and employer growth, which are driving up real estate values. And so those that are in the 60% and higher, let's call it 60 to 120%, are getting priced out of the market. And they're, they're some of the critical employees for these employers and they're just not, they don't have access to housing, um, that affordable housing. And so what we've done recently, and there's four inputs. So tell your audience to write this down. They can steal the, uh, the Michaels model here and start getting involved in attainable housing. The four inputs are this. One is land value, right? Is how can you get land at or well below market? The second input is a tax abatement. We all know on this call, those that develop real estate, the taxes are a huge impact on the debt we're able to raise, right? So they look at your income on the job and then size your perm debt, and that has a big impact. So as you drop 10, 20, 30% of your overall OPEX, on, it greatly positively impacts your debt load, right? So real estate abatement, land at very little, well below market value, a discount on impact fees. So a lot of where these attainable housing are, they're in somewhat remote areas. They're not going to put them in, although we do have opportunities in downtown areas, but nevertheless, they're sometimes a little bit off the beaten path. And so to run sewer 
water, gas, electric, et cetera, there can be costly. And so there's support with infrastructure and then there's support with kind of impact and permit fees. And when you coalesce those four inputs, we can develop a deal that is both income restricted to the 60 to 120% or so of the income in markets. And we can still get our return on our investors. So just because we're doing attainable housing, if we're doing what the investment community would call an opportunistic deal, right? And so when you bucket the different definitions, when our equity investors look at an opportunistic generally yields in certain markets, 15 to 25% IR, we'll call it, right? And IRR is a funky calculation. Some of your, your audience are saying, what is an internal rate of return? Look at it like this. If you make a $100,000 investment and, we, and you are paid $100,000 and your money back in year one, that's 100% IRR. Right. If your $100,000 investment is paid over two years, i.e. 50000 in your one, 50000 your internal rate of return is at 50%. And so when you think about that, when you make a, an investment in an opportunistic deal, you still need 15 to 25%, depending on the risk profile. And so that will never change. And so how do we, and so we've been working with a lot of different employers on this model. And we've been very successful throughout the country, especially in the Southeast and on the West Coast. Uh, so so the, empl- the employer, does the employer become the project sponsor or are they involved as an investor? Or are they just asking you to provide for, let's say, corporations relocating to the Southeast and they know that they need housing for a thousand employees and they know that there's going to be restrictions to being able to recruit or attract talent to that area if there's not quality housing, are you just the problem solver for them or are you an actual partner to them? So what most of our partners tell us is we do X and that's what we do very well. We don't do Y and Y is real estate. What Y is understanding the risk associated with real estate. It's understanding the management. It's understanding the capital market side of it. And so generally they come in as a silent or limited, uh, partner in that sometimes they own the land and they'll put right. together a 75% land lease, but they generally don't want to take on the real estate risk and the long-term operations. Why we, they really It's like essentially us. what the military did. The military exactly. used to provide their own housing and the Army Corps of Engineers built it and the installation managers maintained it. And what they realized was we were giving a poor product to our soldiers at a very costly price. And I don't, I'm just going to email me and argue that, okay, we got it done cheaper, better, whatever. I think the macro trend was if we privatize this, we're going to give a better quality solution to our soldiers at a more cost-effective price because, to your point, Michael's organization or real estate developers do this as a core service, as a core competency we deploy soldiers to wars as a core competency. We shouldn't be in the real estate game. So let's partner. Let's find folks that specialize or their core competencies are in this lane. And we'll say, and then we'll bring, we'll merge together and create the best product for the customers. And that's at the end of the day, it's, it's the military families, right? It's the affordable families. It's the workforce, right? That, That we all need to come together and say, at the end of the day, that's who we serve. How do we bring all of our resources and our talents together to bring the best deliverable to our customers. And when we think about that in the affordable housing, the military, the workforce product, it all reverts back. Let's put the best players on the field in the, in the positions that they can perform at their highest and best values. 
and everybody's happy. And so that's what this product does. I don't think I'm spoiling any marketing news by bringing it up because I think I saw it on LinkedIn, but is this what you're doing in the partnership with Walt Disney World? Yes, absolutely. So so we've partnered with Walt Disney World to build 1,300 homes on their campus, and we're working through a lot of the details, but that's effectively what this does. It allows for their, their employees to live close to the campus and enjoy housing that they can afford because as everyone on this call probably understands, Florida in particular, the real estate values have been trending at unconsciously for unconscionable percentages over the last couple of years. And it has a tremendous negative impact on a lot of the employees, right? And as all these folks from the Northeast move down South, the Southwest and others on the West Coast move to the Southeast, it just has a huge upward force on, on real estate values and the rental. Is the forcing function, I think Disney was relocating a lot of its West Coast offices to the Orlando area. Is that part of what's forcing the need for this? It's, it really is real estate. Certainly their desire to think about their corporate office space and so forth. But when in the, sco- in the scope of the amount of migration into the north, into the state South. and the southeast, a blip on the radar. It really is just the result of just a tremendous amount of real estate and migration boom in and around the area that's just having a toll on real estate. There's only so much product in the market. And when you have all that demand, it just it sends values and rental rates through the roof. And that's what's transpired in Florida and many of the counties. And everywhere you go, you read the newspaper, it's we need workforce housing. And so yeah. what that's done is it's really helped to put this on the forefront for a lot of public servants in the place, whether it's at the county level, the state or the federal to say, hey, how can we do more of this? So I think this Disney model, BJ, is going to be is already rolling out throughout the country. All right. And for our listeners, we'll put something in the show notes about the write up about this between Disney and Michaels, because I think I saw some articles. Um, switching gears a little bit, you're here. I think you run everything for the Northeast for Michaels. Is that accurate? So the East Coast, it's, Holy it's kind of gone a little further. Yeah. So we have an office in, obviously we're headquartered in the city of Camden and we made that intentional move about three years ago. We really wanted to be where we play and I lead a lot, many of our local efforts. So we've invested probably a half a billion dollars in the city of Camden in the last couple of years. And it's been tremendous. We have an office in the Mid-Atlantic. We have an office in the Southeast. We have an office in Puerto Rico. We have an office in Chicago, in California, in Texas, in Hawaii. And so I, I help lead much of our strategy and our structure and then our pipeline throughout the country. Uh, in the future, it'll just be on the East Coast, but we've done a lot in terms of recently for we've merged our entire real estate development platform. So we're very much siloed in our student, in our market rate, and in our affordable businesses. And we have talent across the platform. And the idea was, how do we merge these verticals? So when we face to the public, we're just one company, as opposed to deal with Nick on micro residential, deal with on the affordable now. So we're going to cities, like for example, in Hartford, Connecticut with the Bushnell site saying, hey, we can do whatever, whether it's student, whether it's market rate, whether it's military, whether it's affordable, and so we're trying to solve city-wide housing crisis, and we're doing that. We just got awarded a big job in Hartford, Connecticut, to provide a whole array of residential. Of uh, We're partnering with different folks like Republic and so forth to provide some of the institutional performing arts centers, hotels, et cetera. And so that's really going to be a big theme of our 
future marketing platform. If I scroll through your LinkedIn every other day, maybe every other week, I don't know, it seems to be something exciting going on in the city of Camden or in the state of New Jersey that you're involved in, you're ribbon cutting, you're announcing, groundbreaking. Talk to us about the types of projects you're doing and maybe even some lessons learned that you've had in developing in the city of Camden. So to my earlier point, we've been in the city for probably 25 years. And in the summer of 19, we decided, and it wasn't just back room saying we're going to make a move. There was a program that Governor Christie at the time spearheaded. It was called the Economic Redevelopment Growth Program. And it provided incentives for corporations to consider moving to the city of Camden. And so we work in that space all the time in terms of incentives. And so we evaluated in detail and made the decision that it was in the best interest of our families and our teammates at Michael's to move here. And it's been such a rewarding experience, not only in our ability to be boots on the ground in a city that we is now our hometown and we love and to make investment that's really changing the trajectory of these communities. So part of what we decided we wanted to do is we wanted, we didn't want to just do one-off jobs. We wanted to be intentional about how we, what we and some others defied as inclusive prosperity. We know the waterfront's going to move, right? Anytime you have views of Philadelphia and you have beautiful walking paths, so be it. But what are we going to do to invest in the neighborhoods? And so we first ventured into the Centerville neighborhood and made a $100 million investment in the redevelopment of Clementine Branch Village and completely changed the street grid, brought brand new, beautiful Energy Star townhomes, 275 of them. We brought medical space. We brought a healthy garden. We brought a full-scale kitchens to promote community events. And so then we moved into Cooper Plaza. We did a historic rehab of a ton of homes in that area to help preserve the character of that particular community. Then we went to East Camden and we redeveloped 275 homes at McGuire Gardens that was in risk of being obsolete and inhabitable to keep that on a long-term platform for success. Uh, we're now in Kramer Hill neighborhood making a $165 million investment in the city's oldest public housing community to build 425 brand new homes with medical, with retail, with nonprofit space, et cetera. And, and a recent initiative, which I'm excited about any, is I've partnered with Virtua Health and huge shout out to Dennis Pullen, the CEO of Virtua, just really it's been focused on helping to bridge the disparity of healthcare in the neighborhoods. And we'll start in the next two months, development of 47 senior homes and 5,300 square feet of specialty care in the Whitman Park neighborhood right near the Paco speed line on Ferry Avenue and the ability to walk out of your home and enter 12, 12 to 14 exam rooms of world-class healthcare at your doorstep in the neighborhood of Whitman Park and Parkside is a game changer. And so we're going to partner with Virtua. They're going to program that space. We'll manage and own and operate the senior housing. But the lesson that I learned is developers generally are anxious to to get anyone's input, right? Like we all think we know exactly what needs to happen and we all have egos. And I know you're a big reader, BJ, and I love the ego is the enemy by our stoic friend there, Ryan Holiday. And so we have egos, right? We all have them. I do, you do, your audience does. It drives us, right? We are very passionate about what we do. And what I've learned is if you let your ego go and you meet with community stakeholders, you meet with residents, you meet with local politicians, and 
yeah, we don't always agree, but I'm going to tell you what I think works. I want to hear your input. I want to listen, right? A lot of, it's very easy to sit in a room and just let folks talk and then not do anything. But I want to listen. I want to respond. I want to be very thoughtful and strategic about how we operate. And the beauty of it is when you go into a planning board hearing and you're proposing a $150 million investment and you have a hundred residents there that are there to support you versus tar and feather you, which is typically the case wherever you go, it's putting the work in on the front end. And I think, you know, so much, and we could talk about the delayed gratification and what some of the social media, you can find a girlfriend and you can find your food in 10 seconds. There's no substitute for putting the work in and planning and preparing and preparation. And so I've learned throughout my whole career is like you put the work in on the front end and you're going to get results on the back end. But if you just want to steamroll and do what you want to do because you think it's great, more times than not, you're going to go through the gauntlet of issues. And that's a big learning experience that, that I've had in the city. Stakeholder engagement is, I want to highlight that you said listening. Um because I think that it is too easy to pretend and to put a facade on that you're there to listen, but to actually listen, respond, engage. And to your point, the delayed gratification of what that level of engagement or in terms of real estate, you know, what that level of investment, because it's a huge investment that may or may not pay off. But if you make it a part of your business philosophy, it's going to pay off over time. I want to highlight something else because you're super involved in a whole bunch of different community nonprofits. And I talk about for younger professionals that volunteer work is a leadership development hack. It's a place to go get repetitions doing stuff that you're not getting paid for, but you're getting leadership opportunities. You're getting to meet people. You're getting to build relationships, sometimes synergistic to your profession, maybe sometimes not. But the more diverse your network, I think the more diverse your life. And what lessons have you learned by getting involved in volunteering in these community organizations? Yeah, it's so easy. I call it the, and it's defined as the tribe mentality. We hang out in our neighborhoods and a lot of the folks that we interact with on a regular basis, they think and they act just like us, right? And, and you generally gravitate to networks that all believe what you believe and they're similar to your age economics, et cetera. And so what you learn when you get in these boards is you should always, your network should include those that are much younger than you, those that are more mature than you, those that have different backgrounds, those that think much differently than you, because it's so easy to hire people and to engage folks where you can all just agree the entire time. I find when I'm on these boards, because of the disparity in thought, the disparity in, in, in outlook, a disparity of background. We have such powerful conversations because the lens at which we look at decisions is so drastic. And so if you think that hiring someone who always acts like you is the best move for your company, you're, you're, in my opinion, you're probably not always making the best decision and you need to have diversity in thought. And so when you're able, and the old saying is, you want somebody wiser than you because they can help guide you. And then someone who is so optimistic. And that's usually your young group. They come in, they're right out of college. They're, everything works. They, everything's optimistic. And then you meet some of the older folks and they're curmudgeon and run down <laughs> and they've been through the back. So you, you want all that in your discussions. And I, as BJ said, I chair a couple boards in the city. I sit on a couple of nonprofits and I love our work sessions when we're debating material decisions because of 
all of the diversified input you get and then trying to find a collective consensus and unanimity within that. It's a great skill set that you'll learn and anyone, all your audience, if you're not on a board, and I would tell you, get on a board that excites you. Don't get on a board because you know someone or get on a board because you think it's going to help you grow in the business world. Like all that's toxic. You want power and prestige and money. That'll all burn out eventually. Go on a board where you really care about it. You wake up in the morning and you're like, you tell your kids and your wife and your partner or your dog, I can't wait because this is such a powerful mission of mine that really fires up my belly. That's where you're going to be impacted. Awesome. Awesome lesson. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. All right, we're switching to some rapid fire questions. Outside of the office, I know you got kids. I know you're involved in sports. What else drives you outside of the office? Love to travel, especially with the family and the experiences and the bonding we get when we're on the road, whether we're in the air or on the road. That, that's awesome. Love to read fiction books. A big James Patterson guy and love that. Guilty pleasure. That's something new. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Just with what, we, and I'm sure folks in your I, audience, like, well, you're grinding away, but when you get a chance to sit down and read some nonfiction and just zone out and some of the wild stories, and I'm not a very good reader and my IQs probably counted on my finger, on my one hand. So it's an easy read, you go right through it. And it really just takes you away from the wildness that we all live. So uh, hu huge fan there. Big podcast guy. Lo love your podcast. I love a podcast called The Knowledge Project, a guy named Shane Paris. And so I just, I love stories. I love hearing about how other folks address matters, how they think about their own mindset and their own leadership and their own, how they handle issues in, in their own life. And so they, they interview very much like you do. And you got some really good folks that you interview. And there are a couple of my, I want to learn how to cook too. My wife's getting really good at it. And so that's something I want to in the future, spend some more time in the kitchen. All right. I think you need to volunteer at Cathedral Kitchen. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, we the, uh, all right. So we hit books. We, we talked about ego is the enemy. Any other must read books in your library? I'm or must listen right to now. books? Yeah, I'm reading a book right now. It's absolutely fascinating. It's Anthony DeMello. It's called Awareness. And it's, okay. it's, all, it's absolutely fantastic. All the Jim Collins books, huge fan of Stephen Covey. Everything he touches is fan fantastic. Peter Drucker, a big fan of his and go back to it reg regularly with his books. Ryan Holiday, as you had said, every day. He has a book called Every Day. He's very much into stoicism. And that's been, BJ, a big thing. I just, I've been reading a ton about stoicism in the last couple of years and love uh, everything it stands for. Do you subscribe uh, to The Daily Dad? I certainly do. And every day if there's a book, and I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. I'm sure some of your audience knows it. But he basically, every day he has, he has a stoic philosophy that you should think about. And it's really a game changer, in, in my opinion. And, and so I, we were talking about early on, it was all about execution, right? Like I was like, how do I, how do I get stuff done? So my employees, my employers, my teammates. And then it became like, all right, how do I manage like processes, right, as you grow? And I think great leaders, it's all about mindset, right? It's all about how do you come in with the right energy, the attitude, the enthusiasm, the outlook in what we do every day to inspire others and get the best out of others and empower others. And so 
I love it. And I love just the idea of helping to just work on my mindset. We all need coaches, the best tennis players in the world, basketball players, they all have a coach. And so I use these folks as my coaches in, in the morning and in the evenings. I've got a new book for you. I'm sending it to you in the mail after this call. The Confident Mind by Doc Nate Zinzer. He was he led the Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point, which was our sports psychology department. And he's coached Eli Manning on mindset. You're going to appreciate the book. Uh, I can't wait to read it, PJ. I appreciate it. <clears throat> All right. Dead or alive, if you could have three people at a dinner table, who would they be? Elon Musk, to me, whether it's politics or not, I think he's absolutely fascinating what he tries to do in this disruption of everything. So I just find him to be fascinating again, no matter uh, politics aside and some of the nonsense he does. I just I think he's one of the most interesting minds out there. I love would love Warren Buffett, not only because just he's a legend in that investment space, but him and Bill Gates, their philosophy on giving back and everything they do to support the community and support those that have less than them. I just love it. So Elon Musk would be one, Warren Buffett, and um, Michael Jordan would be one. And say this not because I was an athlete, but when you get to that level, and I'll put Tom Brady and Tiger Woods and finding out like the grit that they have. These guys have it all, right? They have money, they have fame, they have anything you could possibly imagine. I think 99%, including myself, I'm not of your audience would say, I have everything I could possibly want. And so you start teetering off, you start becoming complacent, you start not appreciating wins. And to get into the mind of someone and Tom Brady as well, who had it all was with the peak of their profession. And it was never good enough. It was like, I come into work every day with a chip on my shoulder, a desire and like unquenchable thirst to improve. Just, I think that's fascinating. And I would love to deep dive it and understand like, how they have that. And I think we on BJ, I suspect you have it too. Those that you, we all, but like the extent that they have it is just unbelievable. It's just unimaginable. And I would love to deep dive that and, and hear more from them. What's interesting to that is we talk about ego as the enemy and how does that drive you, but the humility that you have to put in the work at that level when you are the greatest, but to know that you don't win every Sunday, you win every day and you've got to put in the work. And to your point, when you've got it all and you've, it is, it, uh, it, it confident was, somebody told me that everybody wants to be Tom Brady. Nobody wants to be him during the day, right? Like yeah. the guy wakes up at the crack of dawn, works 15 hour days. So like everybody says how cool it is to be him, but you put the work. And that's why I say I, there is, I get it. There's people that are, they're smart, they're passionate, they have, but no, nothing substitutes hard work. And I bet you, if you were to think, be able to quantify the amount of focused and intentional work that, that Michael Jordan and Tom Brady and Tiger Woods do, it would just, it would wow all of us and including your audience. The Story that sticks out to me, not those three, but Kobe Bryant, they were talking, I forget the entry on, I think it was the 2008 Olympic team. And all the guys were out partying and celebrating and they're coming in from the bar at 4am and Kobe Bryant is coming down the elevator to go to the gym. And like them seeing that change the culture of that team because they're like, holy shit, if he's putting the work, I, can't, I guess I got to put in the work. And like one, one and two people at a time, he just changed the culture of that team and by his example and work ethic. It's pretty inspiring. All right. Favorite quote? 
Direction over speed is something I spent a lot of time on. And I used to run 100 miles an hour and I was so enamored with achievement and getting things done. And you wake up in the morning, I had 19,000 things on my things to do list. And it was like a sprint to accomplish as much as possible. And I'd sit back in the night and reflect and say, I got a lot accomplished, but did it actually help me get to my goal? And so I've been very much every day thinking about where I want to go as a professional, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, and then making decisions based on that versus my previous self that would just wake up and just run a thousand mile an hour, a thousand miles an hour a day, and then do it again. Direction over speed. I like it. All right. Legacy. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want on your tombstone? At the end of the day, I just want to leave the world better than I got there. And I know that sounds cliche. Hey, a lot of, I just, I want to be impactful. I think if you look back at your life and you didn't have a positive impact on the world, then what the heck are you doing? Why are you even here? And what excites me is I want families and I want children and I want my own kids to say, what he positively impacted, whether it's families that, that were very vulnerable at the time, whether it was homeless veterans, whether it was those victims of domestic violence, like his work had a positive impact. His nonprofit work helped others. And I'll be able to rest in that six foot tombstone grave, you know, easily knowing that I, my life is fulfilled because I've helped others. And that's very meaningful to me. Good way to end, but the floor is yours. Any closing comments to our audience, closing inspiration? We've got senior executives in the private sector. We've got public sector officials, and we've got junior, junior talent and some transitioning vets listening. So anything else you want to share? I, always, I think of this, I, and I think across the board, it's don't forget to make a life while you're, make, while you're making a living. I, and it could be, it's like we, we spend so much time trying to make a living. It goes back, it's live your life. It, life goes by so quickly. And it's just wake up every day and do something that, that you really, you, you get enjoyment out of. It's tough. I know you start having children and then the children go off to school and an issue, something that came up when I was taking MBA classes, they said, here's the conundrum in life. It's so when you're young, you have time and you have health, but you have no money. They said, when you get middle age, you have some time, you have some money and you have health, but you have no time. And then as you get older, you have some money, you have time, but you have no health. And so just wake up every day and live it to the fullest. And if you don't like your current situation, change it. Stop making excuses because that story you tell yourself is the story you're going to live and you need to change it. And whether you need to read some Anthony DeMello or you need to read Ryan Holiday to get out of that funk. But if you wake up and you're lethargic and you have no energy and you're not doing what you love, like you're going to blink and you're not going to be able to change it. So just all your listeners, man, and women, just if you're not happy what you're doing, the only person that can change it is you. And based on this call, let's do it tomorrow. Or do it now. Nick Cangelosi, thanks for everything you're doing to inspire people and places. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Great to have you. And keep up the good work at Michael's. Appreciate it, BJ. Thanks for having me. Thanks, brother. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. 
be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.